Okay, tonight we're going to shift gear slightly and uh, move away from <laughs> some of the earlier material, although I'm going to make a reference to it in a second, and now start to look towards Mahayana Buddhism. Now, Mahayana Buddhism really isn't what I call a homogenous school of Buddhism. It's really very, very heterogeneous. It's lots and lots of different traditions. Unlike the Theravada tradition, which shares um, really what I call a collective approach to things, although there are some differences between different Theravadan schools, there's much, much more consistency to what is being taught within Theravada. In the sense that um, you have this big figure in the 5th century, somebody called Buddhaghosa, who really synthesizes it all, and he becomes, in a sense, the founder of Theravada Buddhism as we have it in the West now. And it's worth pointing out, just as a historical point, that Theravada Buddhism had little or if no interaction pretty well with what was going on in northern India in really the final years that Buddhism remained in India. It was cut off primarily from the mainstream that was happening, although elements sometimes reached, for example, Sri Lanka. It was cut off um, from the mainstream development. So a lot of things really never impacted that much on Theravada Buddhism as it was practiced in South Asia at all. And also, as a historical point, the criticisms that you often see in Mahayana Buddhism um, of something that you will all have heard, a word called Hinayana, yeah, of Hinayana schools, were not directed at Theravada Buddhism. Yeah, they weren't the concerns. Hinayana were just non-Mahayana schools. That's all. It's a word I like to abolish, actually. Um, it's usually fudged the translations of it by something like the lesser vehicle and the greater vehicle and things like this. And actually the word hina actually means inferior. So it's actually, literally, it was pejorative. It meant the inferior schools. Um, so as a, can I just check, did you say that uh, the Theravada um, somehow cut off from later developments in the Buddha's life? Is it no, after the Buddha. This is after the Buddha's death. Uh, oh, okay. yeah, with the development of Mahayana Buddhism in North India, which is primarily where it took place. Again, I just want to kind of make a few historical remarks and move away from this, because um, the foundation and the growth of Mahayana Buddhism is, is basically shrouded in a lot of obscurity. I mean, there's been quite a lot of scholarly work done on it, but there's not a lot of concrete evidence. All we know is that towards the end of the 2nd century BCE and pretty well into the 1st century BCE, new texts started to be produced. These were being produced in Sanskrit. Um, again, another interesting move because um, in the Vinaya, the, you know, the book of discipline, the code of discipline that you find, which tells all the stories about how the monastic rules originated and things like that, and I think I said the other night, some of the things that get up, the monks got up to were pretty prosecutable, most of them. Mm. Um, but they tell stories about the way 
monasticism grew up, and one monk actually in the Vinaya comes to the Buddha and says, should our texts be composed in Sanskrit? And the Buddha says, absolutely not. So it's what I call creeping Sanskritism. It's a terrible illness that we can suffer from. Uh, and certainly in late Indian Buddhism, in, in Indian Buddhism, this is what happened. Sanskritization started to be affected. And so you've got the production of these texts in this period, in this time frame, between, the, uh, say, the end of the 2nd century BCE and the beginning of the 1st century BCE, of texts which became known under a collective name, Prajna Parimita, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. Yeah. They are, from the point of view of the scholarly approach, they are late developments. They are not the word of the Buddha. They purport to be the word of the Buddha. Um, and I'm sorry to say, for all those who think that perhaps they were, they're not. Um, certainly on the, on the kind of research that's been done into the origin of these texts. They, however, parody something, and they claim to authenticity, because they all start off with, in something in Sanskrit which goes, Eva Mishrutam, which means, well, it's usually translated, thus have I heard. Um, and heaven knows why we continue to parrot this old translation. It means, I've heard it said. <laughs> That's really all it means. So they all start, pretty well, most of them start off with this particular form, which in a way tries to valorize them as being literally the words of the Buddha. Now, there are a number of themes that arise within this, um, and I'm going to mention them, and I'm going to read a quote, which actually doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about at the moment, but I want to then say something else on the back of this. There are primary themes that emerge in the Prajnaparamita. If you're looking for a consistent philosophy of the Prajnaparamita literature, you're going to have to find difficulty in finding it. What you find is major themes arising. One theme that's very heavily present in there is the theme of the Bodhisattva. Yeah. The being, again, this is not a new term, it's there in early Buddhism. The Buddha often refers to himself before he becomes the Buddha as the Bodhisattva, you know, the one who's going to become the Buddha. One in training, virtually who's going to become the Buddha. So it's a term that's being picked up on and elevated into an aspiration um, for everybody who joins this particular path. Something else that you find often within the Prajnaparamita literature is the doctrine of two truths, of absolute and relative truths, of, of conventional truths, some kind of ultimate truth. Yeah, these are themes that you also find in there. And the other theme, surprise, surprise, that you find in there is shunyata, emptiness, as a main theme within it. Now, they, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to read Pajamparamita texts. They're baggy monsters, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, they really are. I mean, they don't hold together a lot coherently. <laughs> And even very, very famous sutras like the Vajracedika, the Diamond Sutra, um, again, it's a bit of a baggy monster. You know, it's all sort of jumps all over the place. It's not like the discourses that you find in the Pali Sutta material, which are laid out very, very system systematically, albeit in a very ancient way, you know, kind of a systematized way. So you <clears throat> look at these and you can't really find what I could call a coherent philosophy running through them. 
Now, Prajna Paramita texts continue to be produced from that period, from roughly around the 1st century BCE, all the way up until the 12th century. Yeah. All claiming to be the word of the Buddha. So they, have a, they have a very long history. Um, and texts like this were produced in India anyway, within yogic traditions and Hindu traditions. You know, Upanishads, for example, which some of them are very ancient, continue to be produced all the way up to the 16th century. You know, um, so not every Indian text is an ancient text by any means. In fact, when I, when I come uh, back next time, I'll, I'll bring a little visual display. I've got a, a Sanskrit Prajnaparamita text um, that I can show you, uh, what it actually looks like. It's, it's a complete facsimile of a 12th century text. So it uh, just shows you what they look like. Now, one of the primary things that runs throughout the history of Buddhism, and this is the way we're going to approach Shunyata in relationship to the Mahayana, is this anti-metaphysical stance. You know, there is a tendency in the human mind to want to grasp after big questions, Really, really big questions. Questions, in a sense, that have no answer. You know, that have no definitive answer, other than you can make a kind of stipulative stab at it and say, well, this is the way it is. So these questions are, you know, are big, big questions. The Upanishadic tradition of ancient India started off this form of questioning by starting to ask these massive, massive, sort of almost cosmological questions. You know, like simple ones, like where does it all come from? You know, is there freedom? Uh, does the soul exist after death? Yeah. And you find in early Buddhism exactly the same thing creeping in. And I think I mentioned this to you, but I thought I'd read the actual passage to you. This is something, um, for those who want the reference, I'll give it to you. It's in the middle-length discourses, and it's Sutta number 63. It's called the Chula Malunkya Putta Sutta. Chula means small, Malunkya Putta, the son of Malunkya. So this is the son of Malunki who's coming to the Buddha and asking a question. Um, and the questions he's asking are kind of the little ones again. Here's a rough idea. You know, mm. Is the world finite or infinite? Is the soul the same or different from the body? Um, is the soul one thing and the body another? After death, does a Tathagata exist? After death, does a Tathagata neither exist or not exist? If the Blessed One knows after death that Tathagata both exists and does not exist, let the Blessed One declare that to me. So he's been pretty provocative. Uh, and the Buddha doesn't pull his punches, he goes, misguided man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, all, it's not all sweetness and light. <laughs> uh, because basically, what he's, uh, Malunki Putta is, is a is a monk in the Buddha's order, and he says, unless you answer these questions, I'm going to give it all up. I can't see any reason for being a monk if you won't answer my questions. So it kind of being pretty provocative to him. So uh, he says, misguided man, who are you, and what are you abandoning? And he says, if anyone should say thus, I will not lead the holy life under the Blessed One until the Blessed One declares to me the world is eternal, and then there's the whole list of questions again. Uh, that would still remain undeclared by the Tathagata, and meanwhile that person would die. Suppose, suppose Malunkiputta, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions, his kinsmen and his relatives, brought a surgeon to treat him. 
the man would say, I will not let this surgeon pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. And he will say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name of the clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short or of middle height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden-skinned, until I know whether the man who wounded me lives in such a village or town or city, until I know whether the bow that wounded me was a longbow or a crossbow, until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fibre or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild or cultivated, and until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture, of a crow, or a hawk, or a peacock, or a stork, until I know... <laughs> I think you're getting the point. Until I know with what kind of sinew the shaft that wounded me was bound, whether that of an ox, a buffalo, a lion, or a monkey. Until I know what kind of arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped, or carved, or barbed, or, or calf-toothed, or oleander. All this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile, he would simply die. <laughs> I think you get the picture. Um, okay, that's kind of setting, in a way, kind of setting the scene for who I want to talk about this, this evening, um, which is the figure of Nagarjuna. And the philosophy of Shunyatara as it arises in Mahayana Buddhism. There's much discussion, by the way, that Mahayana Buddhism or Mahayana does not mean great vehicle. These days. It probably means vehicle to the great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, all this still hasn't stopped, even in the uh, 21st century. It hasn't, no. <laughs> um, basically, because it's uh, the way the Sanskrit is formed. Isn't it? Now, actually, that's interesting. If it was vehicle to the great rather than great vehicle, there's a slight different emphasis, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it actually takes a lot of the pejorativeness out of, you know, we've got the great vehicle and this is the inferior vehicle, although it doesn't completely dismiss the Hina aspect of it. So what it is, it's seeing itself as a new vision of what Buddhism is about. Yeah. And this is what the Mahayana vision really is. It's a vision that's slightly different from early Buddhism about why we're practicing. Remember I started off the very first talk I gave and saying, why are we here? What are we doing this for? Well, you know, in the early form of Buddhism, it's quite clear why we're doing it. We're doing it for the sake of individual liberation. You know, to attain, if one takes the, uh, to attain the status of a worthy one, an arahant. Yeah. That's the whole tenor of early Buddhism. Is actually individual awakening, and the Buddha himself often refers to himself as the arahant, as well. This phrase, which means worthy one. Now, there are stages to be passed through, and there's distinct stages moving from what's called stream entra to the arahant itself. Stages in development, if you like, from you know, kind of infancy to full development. Now, Mahayana Buddhism has a completely different take on, in a sense, why we're practicing. How this came about is open to a lot of speculation. I'm not going. This is not the time and the place to do it in here, but. It's certainly presenting a new vision, and the vision here within Mahayana Buddhism goes like this, is to attain perfect Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. Yeah. 
to attain full enlightenment, awakened, awakened state, perfect Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. So the aim and intention is not to remain a Bodhisattva or a Bodhisattva. The aim or intention of Mahayana Buddhism is actually to attain full Buddhahood. And why is that the aim and intention? And this might correspond with some of our motivations for why we're here, you know, particularly if you're in the Mahayana path already. The path might be one, for example, of attaining that because that state, because actually, well, well, the words of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha have brought us here. You know, even if we don't call ourselves Buddhists, even if we don't want to ally ourselves with Buddhism, we're here because of this dispensation that was given two and a half thousand years ago and the practices which have really informed this inquiry, which is what we call the Buddhist path, for that two and a half thousand years, motivated by this dispensation, this discovery. The Buddha doesn't claim to have anything revealed to him, remember. He just discovers what he considers to be the truths about the way things are. And so actually anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. You, know, you too can discover what the Buddha discovered, and that will be the state of arahantship. Now, what happens with Mahayana Buddhism is we get a, a more social focus to it. In yep. Could you define the difference exactly between arahant and Buddha? Not a lot. Um, it's very difficult to define the difference between arahant because, as I say, the Buddha himself uses the word almost interchangeably in the early texts. There seems to be, in the theorization that went on after the Buddha's time, you won't find this in the, in the Pali Nikayas at all, that an arahant is defined somehow as still having residual imprints left, but not ones that would bind you to samsara any longer. And a passage that's always cited, it always amuses me, actually, is a passage cited in it where Sariputta is walking along the road and he jumps up in the air and clicks his heels together. And the Buddha says, oh, that's because he was a monkey in his past life. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of stuff that doesn't really keep you bound. Weren't we all? Weren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Here speaks a true Darwinian. <laughs> but um, that's really what you're saying, is there are residual imprints which really don't make any difference, but they've been completely eradicated with the state of Buddha. Now, I, Buddhahood, I don't personally you know, buy into that. I think there's actually the terms are used synonymously. The main distinction seems to be that Buddhas give a dispensation, they give a teaching, they actually lay down the Dhamma, they give the Dhamma. Yeah. Yeah, but you just said that's the difference between the, the two schools. So is it then that it's the individual liberation versus uh, doing it for all sentient beings? It's that. It's the, mainly that focus that the focus within non-Mahayana Buddhism is on individual liberation. Now, I think much, and I don't really want to kind of say this at this point, I think much too much is made of the so-called big differences between Mahayana and the early forms of Buddhism, particularly what we find in the Pali Nikayas. Virtually everything that we find in Mahayana Buddhism has some kind of precedent in the early texts. There's nothing really new that's there. It's just a difference of emphasis 
that takes place with the development of Mahayana Buddhism. Much of, again, kind of, I'll just mention this, but much of the polemics, I don't know if you've read any of this stuff, any of you read any of these kind of texts? You find all this stuff about Hinayanists and that going on, and some of the scholarly research seems to um, suggest that this is quite a small group in northern India. Actually, the majority are not Mahayanists. They are actually non-Mahayanists. And so this is the, the rhetoric of a you know, kind of group who's feeling a bit endangered <laughs> as a species. Mm. Yeah. Mahayana Buddhism really is not a major force in India at all. It really begins only to be, and the term Mahayana begins to be used more frequently around about the 4th, 5th century. And then in relation to, to Chinese Buddhism. Now that's where you really find it taking off in Chinese Buddhism. So much so that one very, very famous text, which even if you know nothing about this at all, you will have at least probably stumbled across in some form, the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra is probably a Chinese text translated into Sanskrit. Yeah. Its process has gone the other way. You know, stuff's gone from China to India rather from India to China here. And it's a classic condensation of, obviously, the Shunya view, the Shunyavadin view. Shunyavadin means a follower of Shunya, yeah, or the way of Shunya. Yeah. Now, this emphasis in view, this change of difference of what Buddhism is about, emphasizes social action a lot helping sentient beings. Um, there, there is a kind of mythology that sometimes still goes around, and I still see it in books, you know, that the purpose of you know, the Bodhisattva is to basically stay around in Sangsara until every being, every sentient being, has been liberated. Yeah. I have great problems with it. I call this a very Anglo-centric view of the Bodhisattva. I can remember, can you imagine the last two Bodhisattvas in the world after you? No, after <laughs> you. <laughs> no, you've seen Englishman trying to go through a door. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, the emphasis is actually on the attainment of full awakening. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel the giggles coming from behind me. <laughs> Please carry on. Um, so the emphasis is on full awakening because of the dispensation that will be given. And what is being focused on is the actions that the Bodhisattva will have to engage in in order to achieve that full awakening. And it's like endless altruistic action you have to engage in to become a fully awakened Buddha. <laughs> And I actually don't think this is much, much different from what goes on even in non-Mahayana Buddhism. You cannot, as I've tried to emphasize, go through this world without engaging in acting, and you have to try and act as well as you can. So there's an enormous ethical implication, but it's probably not pushed to the forefront of non-Mahayana approaches as it is in Mahayana approaches. Now, every tradition has these wonderful moralistic tales called Jataka tales, yeah, 
Um, they're popular reading. They are um, moralistic tales, mostly. Tales of altruism. They're pretty formulaic, actually. Um, and again, I don't know if you've ever read any of them, Jataka tales. Uh, they're meant to be inspirational. You know, they're usually about giving up something. Um, often, you know, for example, you find the Bodhisattva giving up his life. Renunciation. Um, renunciation, giving away things. Being eaten by a tiger. That's the one I was going to mention. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, being eaten by a tiger so she can feed her cubs. <laughs> um, so they kind of have this moralistic theme running through them. The Vasantra Jataka, which is one of the most popular in South Asia, actually even involves giving away your family. <laughs> you know, um, it's a kind of <laughs> although it probably sounds quite good in the West, doesn't it? To a hungry tiger. I must stop this. <laughs> so, so there are all of these tales of altruism, and they're meant to be, of course, inspirational in, in, in generating altruism in the individual. So this is one of the major themes of Mahayana Buddhism. That there was probably very little conflict between Mahayana and non-Mahayana is evidenced even in the 7th century, because there's a Chinese uh, traveller, somebody called Xuanzang, who actually travelled round the whole of India collecting texts, which he later took back to China and became the foundation of some of the schools in China. And he visited looking, because Mahayana was such a big thing in China, he went looking for Mahayana institutions in India, and this is in the 7th century, and couldn't find any. You know, what he found was monks with Mahayanist aspirations living in the same monasteries as non-Mahayana practitioners. And the actual main emphasis was still on the Arahant ideal in India, even in the 7th century. So it's something that's really occurred and taken off. However, that's all kind of preamble to get me where I want to be. <laughs> what did you say, the ma what is the word Mahayana? Mean? Mahayana, well it can mean two things. The, the, late, the kind of recent scholarly evidence seems to indicate it probably means vehicle to the great. Oh, that's okay. Rather than great vehicle. Okay. Yeah. So it's a slight different. The vehicle to the great would make sense because it's actually <coughs> towards full Buddhahood, you know, perfect awakened Buddhahood. What does Vajrayana mean then? I mean, if it's great, it's lesser vehicle, great vehicle, and then the diamond vehicle, right? Diamond vehicle, admantine vehicle. Right. Yeah, yeah. It could mean the vehicle towards the admantine, mm -hmm. whereas Hinayana translates away the vehicle towards the inferior. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But it's pretty pejorative stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Is it the democratization in some way? I don't mean democracy and mm. voting way, but is it kind of like the democratization of Buddhism, and making it more available? Yeah, it is. It, it does make it much more available. One has to bear in mind, even to this day, that, um, for example, in South Asia, which is dominated by the only extant form of non-Mahayana Buddhism, Theravada, then Theravada actually leaves relatively little room for lay practice within there. You know, up until the 19th century, um, for example, in these cultures, you wouldn't find lay people like yourselves engaging in meditation practice. Yeah. Primarily because there was no middle class. There was a ruling class, 
and there was the peasants and the lower class who farmed the land. So actually, probably if the choice was between meditation and growing food, I know which one you would opt towards on a subsistence culture. So you're going towards that. And it was only really with colonisation and colonial things which created the middle class that you then got lay people engaging in meditative practices. Not that many, but you got that coming in. Whereas actually when you look at Mahayana practices, there's a lot more room and a lot more scope for lay practice within it. Because you get the, what I call the religiousization of Buddhism occurring, and you get a lot of devotional practices coming up, particularly centred around the cults of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. You get all of that occurring in Mahayana Buddhism. But that's not going to be the thing, because that's not really where I want to go. That's just really kind of setting the scene. Now, the first great figure in Mahayana Buddhism, or recognised really almost as a progenitor of it, is the figure of Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna lives around about the beginning of the 2nd century BCE. Um, I actually kind of make a provocative statement. I've actually written about it some times as well and said there are only two great figures in the whole history of Buddhism two absolutely enormous figures in the history of Buddhism one is the Buddha and the other is Nagarjuna Nagarjuna is trying to say what the Buddha says you know, he's just really trying to restate it in a, in a world that has changed slightly now to get into Nagarjuna's philosophy well A I don't recommend reading it straight away it's very very difficult stuff um, there are texts which are readable um, but not the ones that primarily deal with shunya. They're very, very difficult, very, very gnomic, and I don't want to put you off, but they just are. They're very difficult, even in the original languages, to read them. Uh, it's a very obscure form of Sanskrit, and very difficult to translate, actually. Now, in the Garden is trying to restate something. Why is he trying to restate what the Buddha said? Well, you think the Buddha has said it eloquently enough anyway. Well, first of all, and this is again a tendency of the human mind, is to want to overcomplicate things, grasp after certain entities as being real and others as not being real. The whole history of Buddhism has been uh, really trying to steer a clear path between the Scylla and Charybdis of eternalism and nihilism. Yeah, that's in the whole history of Buddhism, um, and what we f- what you find is in that tendency. I'm going to get this all practical in the end. I'm kind of trying to see the scene. Is is the tendency to swear to to veer or swing to one side or the other? You know, to end up holding on to something as being real, or to say nothing is real at all. Now, as you well can imagine, having now kind of into well into the second week or so of this retreat, can see how you can swing towards a nihilistic. You know, with you know, particularly if you interpret emptiness in the wrong way. Empty could mean meaningless. Yeah. Very great danger in that. Yeah. Or instead of you know, this kind of phenomenal reality that we see around us, actually now we have an absolute which underlies it all called emptiness. And basically, Nagarjuna says in one of his texts, people who grasp after emptiness as an absolute are incorrigible. 
Yeah. Now, what was what is being represented there is this tendency of the human mind to want to grasp after something. Probably more so than the trying to say everything is meaningless, non-existent, worthless. It, the tendency is much more towards to want to grasp after something, some particular entity, some aspect of ourselves. Um, I've kind of talked in other evenings about how what is often going on is actually as we start to see our way through the kind of solidity of self we start perhaps to fixate on more subtle things within experience rather than the gross notion of the self which you know, intellectually we might be able to get some grasp of that it doesn't really exist in the way we think it exists but because of this almost counterintuitive aspect of it, we're often looking for something much more subtle underlying it, something which is really there. Let's face it, we're all looking for the real me in some way. <laughs> that's a phrase that's often new. I mean, a lot of New Asian does that, you know, we'll go in search of our real self. Yeah. Now, that real self might not be the gross self, but now becomes something much more subtle. And I haven't spoken much about it, but the Abhidharma tradition broke things down even further. So remember I said one evening, I can't remember which evening it was, that we go from the five khandhas into 121 forms of consciousness with 52 mental factors, and that's a kind of greater breaking down of all of this. Um, and these 52 mental factors represent what's called dharmas, elements of experience, elements of experience. So whilst the, the gross physical person, in some sense, doesn't possess reality, the small elements of experience that go to make up experience are said to possess some kind of reality. Yeah? Now, in Theravada Buddhism, it's not a problem, because they're all considered to be momentary. They come into existence, they go out of existence. They come into existence, they go out of existence. It's almost like an atomistic theory, except the atoms don't hang around. Yeah. They're just arising and passing away, and arising and passing away. And all 52? Not together, no. They, some. Yeah, some will arise in different combinations together with consciousness, and, and this is forming our experience. This is a very simplistic way of putting it. It's actually slightly more complicated than this. But, instead of grasping after then the physical self, it might be that you start grasping after these little bits of experience as being real. Yeah. Now... We don't know because there is no real evidence for what particular tradition the uh, Nagarjuna was attacking. But there were certainly Abhidharmists around in northern India at the time of Nagarjuna who said that these dharmas possessed what's called, here's a technical term, swabhava, intrinsic existence. Yeah. They possessed intrinsic existence. They were real. Is that the same thing of Bhavna? Bhavanga? Oh, is slightly different, but it's the same root. It's the same concept. Yeah, it's the same root. Bhavanga is a consciousness which goes on. Right, from life to life. For life to life. But is that the, that's not the same? It's not identical. Bhavanga is a later concept. Okay. Um, it's an Abhidharma's concept as well, which is only found actually in Pali Abhidharma. Okay. Um, but it's the same root as well. It means something going on. Yeah, and this is what happens, is that the small elements of existence are real and they will keep re-arising. Okay. 
Now, there's an advantage to this, if you can think about it, which is that if you want to know how experience is constructed, this is what it's constructed out of. It's constructed out of these little momentary experiences, which all possess some degree of reality. So there's no impermanence? There is impermanence because they're changing. They're they're constantly coming and reconfiguring um, in different constellations with consciousness. Are these particles we're talking about something different here? You're talking about something different here. Yeah. Yeah. In the kind of thing that is attacking, there's something very different here. Mm-hmm. Because they're claimed to have real existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're claimed to be real existing <laughs> entities. Now, I, d- I think the, kind of the debate about that is pretty historical and, and actually not terribly interesting unless you're a scholar who wants to go away and study this. And the only reason I say this is to show just again the tendency of the human mind to want to constellate towards something that has to be real within it. And this patterns particularly with the conceptualising mind. The moment we start to think about things, you know, like poor old Malunke Putter, the misguided man, He's wanting to think about things, and he's wanting to see what things are real. Okay, they're big questions. Now, the big questions can dissolve into smaller and smaller and smaller questions, but you're still searching for real, still searching for essence, still searching actually for some kind of certainty in our experience. Even if I end up just being a bundle of 52 mental factors and 28 physical factors, (laughs) and loads and loads of consciousness, at least I know what I am, <laughs> yeah. and I can say this is a real experience of me at that brief moment in time I'm joking about this slightly but I hope I'm demonstrating the tendency of the human mind to want to fix on something to hold on to something and this is Nagarjuna's problem is with the Buddhists of his own period that they're trying to fix on something and claim it's real so you find statements in the Gajana such as Avadharma is a wonderful map, but it's not reality. Yeah. And I think that's a very cautionary thing, and actually a way of approaching any text. It's always a map, it's never the thing. Now there's a tendency, again, and this is a nice tendency in human beings, to want to think that they can think their way to reality, rather than experiencing so remember I said the other night, I kind of gave you a brief snippet, and I'm really not going to go that much further than this tonight. A brief snippet of Nagarjan's philosophy. It's the philosophy of shut up. Be quiet. Stop conceptualising. Stop thinking. Stop trying to do philosophy. Stop trying to ontologize everything. You know? If there is a reality, it can be only experienced. It can't be talked about. Does he, does he actually say that? Yes, he says it in something called the Vigraya Vyavartani, which is a, a particular text, which I can't remember if it's been translated or not. And he actually says this. This is, you know, the, actually the position is reality can be perceived, it cannot be conceived. Yeah. So it's throwing us back onto practice. Yeah, this is the whole import of it, you know, despite all the complexity and the difficulty of trying to understand the garden, what he's really trying to do is show the futility of our conceptual schemas. And this is what he engages in. I always, when I used to teach him in a university setting, I always used to describe Nagarjuna as a philosophical virus. 
Because what he did was get inside a system and destroy it from within. <laughs> um, and without importing any other premises, but simply using the premises of the particular style of argument that was being used to prove a philosophical or a religious point. So if somebody was proving something exists, he would get inside and use exactly the same premises to prove it didn't exist. If somebody said it didn't exist, he'd get inside the system to show through exactly the same style of argumentation that it did exist. Hence the reason for that saying, again, I gave this to you the other night, I have no position. I, he means I have no opinion about things in terms of a philosophical conceptual schema under which I can place things. So it's, it's the deconstruction of any particular position. Now this has evolved wholly in, the, in, in a very big way in the Tibetan tradition, uh, based on Indian models, into a form of dialect, dialectical argumentation of taking positions and basically destroying them and attacking them using a very precise particular form of argumentation, usually. Most of this is based on the style of, of Nagarjuna. Now, there came into being, after Nagarjuna, a particular way of looking at Nagarjuna's thought, which was what's called consequentialism. What are the consequences of holding any particular position? Now, any particular position could be reduced to absurdity. You know, it's called an argument, argument form in philosophy, which is used very much in the garden. So it's called reductio ad absurdum. Reduction to absurdity. Now, he does this. He says, basically, I don't care who it is, whether it's a Hindu or a Buddhist, I will take them on. It's philosophical jujitsu. <laughs> what you're doing is throwing the other person by their own argument. Now... Okay, again, it sounds all very dry and very technical. What does this mean? It means that most of what we hold on to as positions is actually absurdity. You know, when we start saying, it's like this, or it's like this, or it's like this, A, well, we have something to grasp after, and we hook on to, hold on to it. Yeah. So actually, the position becomes all forms of argumentation, all forms of positioning, all forms of opinion are empty. They are empty of any intrinsic existence whatsoever. Now there's nothing wrong because all teaching has to take place through words, but the words are no substitute for the experience. So what Nagarjuna is pointing back to all the time is the preeminence of actually doing the practice to gain the experiences. Yeah. And what we will find in the experience, of course, again, is there is no essentialism there. There is nothing to hold on to. Yeah. There's nothing really graspable within it. So ultimately, of course, like the Buddha, Nagarjuna's thought, despite its complexity, it's very, very different in tenor. Uh, from the Buddha, and that's probably why it comes across when trying to describe it as much drier in some ways, but it's entirely practical. It's to throw practitioners back on the practice rather than thought. You know? It's much easier, isn't it, to go away and think about something than sometimes to sit there with your own thought processes, watching, being attentive to actually what's going on. 
it's far easier to go and theorise about it. Yeah? To kind of try and construct some edifice of what's going on here. Now, I've said the usefulness of, of um, certain approaches, such as the Abaddon approach, I think is an extremely useful approach, but it's not reality. It is a map. And just like any map, you know, what is the use of the map? You know, you can sit at home and go, oh, that looks like a nice valley mm -hmm. with a nice waterfall over there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a huge difference between actually doing that and actually walking the terrain. Yeah? One is purely theoretical and hypothetical, whereas the other is actually engaging in the perception of the waterfall, the valley, the reality of what is there. So Nagarjuna is over trying to help us overcome, I think, this tendency, albeit, as I say, in this very scholastic way because of the time frame he's operating within in India at that period, to help us overcome this tendency of the human mind to want to engage in metaphysical speculation, to want to concretize things and hold on to. Well, if that is not real, this must be real. Watch the tendency of the mind as it regresses backwards to still keep grasping after something. grasping after subtle elements of experience, taking a particular experience, even in meditation, and holding on to that, well, that must have been the real, because that felt pleasant. <laughs> and this one wasn't so real, because it was unpleasant. Yeah. And if I can only get back to the pleasant. <laughs> well, actually, it's coming to you as it comes to you. Pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. You know, whatever it is, just arising and passing away. And what you've got to be is attentive to it. Did he still think about or believe in samsara? Yes. Did he still yes. believe in the wheel? Or he still hold on to it? He did, and there's a very strong statement you find, and this is, again is a very particular Mahayanist approach. Again, I think there's antecedents of it in the early texts as well, is that we are not talking about two things. Sangsara and Nirvana. Well, Nirvana can only be if Sangsara is, and Sangsara can only be if Nirvana is. And therefore you come to the equation that Sangsara equals Nirvana. That there is no distinction between them. You'll, there's thus another outcome of this. Well, if that's the case, then all beings must be awakened already. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of, again, if you take the logic of it and pursue it. That's the kind of end result of it. Now the Sangsara and Nirvana really is saying, well they're not two separate entities. Again, something I hope I've stressed even with you know, talking about them as Sangsaring and Nirvanaing. You know, within the early text it's very much these are ways of being. So therefore it's not there is one world which is Sangsara and there's another world over there which is Nirvana. It's that it's one and the same thing experienced differently. Yeah. That they're not two separate things. The, uh, there can only be unawakening if there's awakening. Yeah. So the unawakened are awakened, is the logic of that. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's putting a slightly different emphasis on this. Slightly different emphasis on it. Nagarjuna uses also dependent origination 
everything that is dependently originated, and and that obviously includes all human experience because it's dependently originated. In other words, this arises in dependence on this, and this arises in dependence, just like those 12 links going around. So therefore, actually, human experience is empty of any intrinsic content. Because anything that is dependent on causes and conditions for its existence must be empty of swabhava, intrinsic existence. Now, what would intrinsic existence look like? That's the question you have to ask yourself. It would have to look like an experience that didn't depend on anything else for its existence. Yeah? It would have to be something of that form. So, let's take the biggest entity within theistic religious traditions. God. God couldn't depend on anything because something then would be greater than God. So God has to be stipulatively defined as the greatest thing which doesn't depend on anything else for its existence. So God would have to possess intrinsic reality. Now, what the Buddha and Nagarjuna are saying, there are no such entities. There is no element that can't be further divided down and shown to be composed of other elements, even if we can't see them at this moment in time. Even the physicist David Berm, I don't know if you've ever come across him, Mm. Um, he was a physicist who worked in London, he's had a lot of dialogue with Krishnamurti, Um, but one of the things he says in in a book called Holders and the Implicate Order is that whenever we perceive simplicity, what we're perceiving is complexity that we can't yet see. Mm. In other words, again, things that are composed. What about that quote I brought up the other day about the Buddha admitting he seemed to have said it once in the text about the unborn, unconditioned, unmade? Didn't Nagarjuna tackle that at all? No, he didn't actually. There's some things he didn't tackle. Um, he didn't tackle everything. He doesn't really tackle Nirvana. It's taken as being a given for him. You know, so you can say there are limitations to the way that he's tackling things. What he's tackling, though, is this perceived swing to something eternalistic. That is where he, he, the sort of current of his thought really rests and, and the practice is really trying to get us to see. It rests on tackling you know, this tendency to swing towards grasping after something. I, I always have a problem with it. Uh, it's like I mean, um, in my own sort of glimpses, you know, uh, it, it's like your, your mind falls apart. And, um, of course, the minute you put into words, it can be attacked. But there's, there's uh, some sense of being, something which transcends everything. It you, you doesn't have any kind of um, limits to it. And now, okay, I can understand that that's not necessarily a self, it can be like the Dharma, it's impersonal. Mm. But it makes lots of sense to me that so Christians or Jews or whatever, or Mohammedans uh, would, in a very different cultural context, see that as God, that something, something which everything's mm. arising or passing out of. Mm. And sometimes I think, I, I, sometimes I fear there's a slight danger of Buddhism to sort of set itself up as knowing better because it's a far more profound, analytical thing. I mean, mm. do, do you know what I mean? It, I do. Yeah. I, 
So I, I can see there's a great danger of fundamentalists, you know, like George Bush. You know, the minute you think you know what the truth is and where the evil is, we'll um, yes. end up with terrible consequences. But is that partly where Nargudgeon is coming from, the great danger of... Yeah, that's right, the great danger of grasping after anything is certainty, you know, of actually positing certainties about things. You know, <laughs> the one thing I think that's opened up by this whole perspective, it's there in obviously the earlier explorations we've been engaged in, is that every human being, and this is particularly true, whether Christian, Buddhist, Jew, whatever, is capable of great good or great evil or great badness, I don't actually like the word either. And it's all there, it's all there within our makeup. Yeah. Yes, living with the devil. Yeah. yeah, so we're all we're all capable of this. Um, so there is no certainty that we're going to be good. There is no certainty that if somebody says something to me at this moment in this unawakened state that really pressures your buttons, that you're not going to hit them. Yeah. Um, yet I can think of myself certainly as a good person. Or, vice versa, you can think of yourself as being you know, a bad person, somebody who never fulfills anything or does anything, and it's kind of creating, again, identity out of some degree of certainty about who you think you are. Even worse, who we think others are, and what they're capable of. As well, there was used to be. I don't. Obviously, people from the states and that won't know this, but there used to be this wonderful advert for a newspaper, and some of you will probably remember this when the, the independent newspaper in this country started looking, um, started um, being printed, and it was a picture of this kind of shaven-headed skinhead running up behind this woman with kind of raised fists, and it just said that it said. It showed that picture and it says, not everybody gets the bigger picture, because then it panned back and shows you it's going to push her out the way of something falling off of a roof. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so again, it shows you our assumptions about something, the way you could see something in one particular way. And actually, we don't know what's going on, often. But things are far more uncertain, far more unclear than we ever think they are. Yeah, so that would be kind of, again, relating to back, to back to the sense of our experience, our perception of it. Now, when we're always positing people as being this, and this is the big danger, isn't it? You know, when I posit this person being like this, you know, this, is, this is the good person. And they might do kind of, kind of lots of bad things to you. And it takes you a long time to cotton on, because you've attached to the idea of this person being a good person. Uh, vice versa... If you think of somebody as being a bad person, they can do all sorts of good things for you. And you might be saying things like, I wonder what they want. What are they trying to get out of me? <laughs> yeah. So it's this fixity, this rigidity in our thinking which is being challenged by this. So in other words, when we start to talk about shunya, we're talking about the absence of any stable, fixed thing that we can grasp onto. Bear in mind, again, I going to keep going through this, so I'm probably going to get terribly repetitive and boring about this, but, you know, we're not saying that the thing itself is now replaced by shunya. It's just the absence of something being there. So it's descriptive. End of story. It's like saying, this thing, this situation, this person, this object, 
ourselves lack intrinsic existence. doesn't say anything more. That's it. End of story. Could you, could you say equally, sir? Could you say equally, it doesn't last? It's impermanent. Yeah, I mean, impermanence is, is actually written into the notion of Shunya, hasn't it? Is that the same thing as saying it's empty? Not really. It's not quite the same thing. It's not quite the same, but we can perceive its emptiness through its impermanence. You know, so it's one way in, if you like, by sort of seeing the empty nature of it. Now I'm going to give you the kind of typical way this would be described in a Tibetan situation. There are lots of ways of making negations. And there are ways of making affirming negations and non-affirming negations. Now, it all sounds technical. I hope you're looking suitably perplexed by all that. You know, I know one person in the room won't be. <laughs> um, that when I say something, often, and you can pick this up in language, actually we do, we, we negate something but put something else in its place in our speech. And I'll give you the typical Tibetan um, examples that come out you know, of, the, of the training. Which is, here's an example of, of an affirming negation. The plump monk Devadatta doesn't eat during the day. Can you see what's going on there? That was an example of... An affirming negation. The plump monk Devadatta doesn't eat during the day. Why is it? Implies if eats at night or something. That's it. Yes, his plumpness implies that he's eating at some other time. So it's negating one thing and suggesting something else in its place, isn't it? Now that is not shunya. Shunya is a non-affirming negation. It talks about an absence without suggesting anything else in its place. It's telling you how something is not. So you would say the monk doesn't eat during the day. Is that how that would be translated? Well, let me give you an example. I'll give you the textual example. Because the, the horns of the rabbit don't exist. <laughs> it's a non-affirming it's, it's non negation. It doesn't suggest anything else in its place. Yeah. It's just saying that something doesn't, isn't there. That's all. Now, shunya is a non-affirming negation. It negates something that's believed to be there, which is intrinsic existence, without suggesting any other way that it is. Because again, Nagarjuna is saying, the only way you can actually understand how it exists is by experiencing it. Not by thinking about it. So if I turned it into a, an affirming negation, I'd be suggesting, well, the way it really exists is. Yeah. Now, that's the big movement that's being made. We're always taking away something which is believed to be there, believed to be there in the person, the object, the thing, whatever. Nothing else. That is what emptiness is. Why is the conundrum in Zen Buddhism? Does the, does the dog possess Buddha nature? <laughs> yes, the dog, dog does possess Buddha nature. <laughs> yes, I know. But now, is this any different from early, I mean, before the Abhidharmas? It's no different, really. Okay, all right. It's no different, really. It's a, reaff it's a reaffirmation. 
of the Buddha's position about these things. So, because of that natural tendency of the human mind to want to grasp our thing. Historically, at the time of Nagarjuna, what had happened was there was lots of Abhidharmas going around and saying there are these really existent entities that make up experience. Yeah. You might be your bundle of you know, 52 mental factors and 28 physical factors and 121 forms of consciousness, and that's what you are. Yeah. Now there's a real grasping after those elements of experience. Whereas this is just saying that any element of experience does not possess intrinsic existence. That does not mean, again, emphasis here, that does not mean it does not exist. So I can say, for example, this has an absence of intrinsic existence within it. I can still sit on it, though. You say it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It does. It also does. It mean we can describe, although it doesn't have an intrinsic existence. We can have description of the way the, what, its characteristics. He doesn't deny that, does he? Does he, I mean, well, I think like the pillow, it, it's it's a certain shape and it's soft and and uh, it has a certain color and and um, and that's all kind of true, isn't it? I mean, yes, but the danger of that is then is the inherent existence of the cushion soft? <laughs> so he is that it, is, is that its ultimate characteristic? Hmm. Yeah. Is um, so he's saying descriptions are not possible. He's not saying they're not possible. He said don't believe in them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you don't see, really believe in. Don't them, really don't. believe in them. They or they have conventional existence. Yeah. They're conventionally useful. Uh-huh. Don't believe in their intrinsic. Uh, yeah. and also this goes for all the doctrines of Buddhist practice as well. So, for example, dependent, you know, dependent origination has no intrinsic existence. It's empty of intrinsic existence. Because even dependent origination is dependent on a perceiver. Well, that's the key. We are always talking here about perceived experiences. So, I mean, even the Buddha was always very clear. He always talks about no notion of... Uh, the seer and of the object or not no um, construction or construe does not construe the seer or the so it's always about the perception the world of perception it's mm. not about the world of physics no. it just happens that now science is telling us the same thing in the world of physics you can break down the cushion into smaller yeah. elements mm-hmm. And there is nothing at the end of all these elements, so actually it's very similar, but it's two different mm. reasoning. Well, I would, I'd say, with a caveat, I would say, I mean, there's still a search in some forms of physics for an ultimate building block out but of which everything is composed. Yeah, that's the whole burn accelerator, isn't it? So it's trying to actually find one of these particles. It's trying to, yeah, it's trying to find some exotic particles that may be responsible for things like that's right. mass and stuff. But yeah, but whether they're going to they're trying to find the, uh, they're saying they're trying to find a particle that has inherent existence. Or that. 
Well, I don't think they put in quite those words, but they're kind of looking for a basic building block out of which things arise yeah. uh, in the universe. Yes. Then they're talking about, you know, um, particles coming, energy and mass, you know, mm. uh, particles coming out of energy and then going back into energy. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all kind of like a process, isn't it? You could view yeah. that as a process the same way uh, the self is a process. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, that's right. I mean, in a way, um, although it's much cruder, obviously, because there's not the scientific technology behind it. I mean, what the Buddha is talking about processes. Mm. And what we start to look at in, in, when we start to think in terms of shunya or experience things in terms of shunya is not their, not their non-existence, but the non-existence of something there that we believe to be there, nothing else. That's all. Yeah, it's like the book. The book was once a tree, and the tree was, was once. Yeah, and, and it's composed out of elements, and if you went into a scientific explanation of it, you'd find that there was kind of interdependence of lots of elements which are all in process, which make what things are. Yeah, that, that, that's all we're getting. So it's a kind of proto-way of thinking our way into that. But the point of this, and I'm going to pick this up next time I come to give you a talk, is ethics. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. Now, all of this stuff, really, I'm saying tonight, is kind of gets us to, to think about that. Perhaps if you want to do some thinking while I'm away till next time, is you know, to think about what are the ethical consequences of this type of view? What are the ethical consequences of it? You know, of this perspective, which actually in its early stage wasn't ever called even Madhyamika, philosophy of the middle way. It was called Shunyavada, followers of the way of Shunya. Yeah. This Shunyavadin perspective was that everything was Shunya. But that doesn't mean that there's this element out there called Shunya. Because Shunya is always of an object. Yeah. Everybody with that? It's always got to be of an object, a thing, a person, whatever. Because it's always a negation of something. Now, under negation will leave you with something to cling on to. Over-negation will take you, in other words, misinterpreting it either way will take you into nihilism or eternalism again. So it's a fine understanding that we're trying to generate. Yeah. I want to kind of just take another couple of consequences of this and then perhaps throw it open because it's, this is more complex material this evening. The Two Truths Doctrine that you find in the Prajnaparamita text, which I said, you know, there are a number of things that arose in the Prajnaparamita. Two truths, the Bodhisattva, Shunyavada. Yeah. Those are the main elements. There's other elements beside, but those are the principal ones. The two truths doctrine. Well, in the guardian's hands, the two truths, you know, ultimate and conventional truths. Well, how can we normally interpret that? Well, we could interpret it metaphysically. The ultimate truth is there is a truth that is kind of hidden behind things or in things that I need to somehow get at or get to. That actually is a philosophical approach. Again, it's a metaphysical approach. Going, trying to find out what is the reality behind the phenomena. Now, in Kantian philosophy, in Greek philosophy, this is called, there is phenomena which wasn't real because it was changing. But behind this was hidden something real. 
Behind, let's go back to Upanishadic philosophy, which the Buddha obviously was there familiar with. Upanishadic philosophy said, the whole world is a world of maya, of illusion. Yeah? It's a term that's used again and again and again. You'll never find that term actually used in quite the same way in Buddhist thought at all. Things are maya-like. They're not maya. They're not illusion. They're illusion-like. Yeah? But they're not actually illusion. Now, the idea that everything was illusion in Upanishadic thought was because there was a reality, if you like, that was the screen in which this illusion was projected onto. And that screen was called Brahman, of which the Atman was just a little bit within the individual of that Brahman. Yeah. But this was unchanging, and it was really real. <laughs> it didn't change. It was aspatial, atemporal, and also didn't depend on causes and conditions for its existence, just like God. Yeah. Now, the Buddha, as you've heard me say, is denying the existence of anything like that. In fact, he makes fun of these kinds of ideas. In the, in the Diganikai, the long discourses of the Buddha, he says things like, you know, searching for something like a creator or existence. He says it's a bit like searching for the most beautiful girl in the world. And somebody comes and says, well, do you know the name of this most beautiful girl in the world? And the person goes, no. Do you know where she comes from? No. Do you know what she looks like? No. <laughs> and there's a whole host of questions like this. And the Buddha says at the end of it, don't you think of somebody who thinks in this way is rather stupid? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in other words, looking and searching for something, you can't get any empirical grasp on. Whatsoever. You know, and aspatial, atemporal things are exactly like that for the Buddha, and I think for Nagarjuna as well. That we're trying to get on something, we are kind of grasping the ineffable, or grasping after the ineffable, um, which is bound to fail, ultimately. So he's always throwing his back on experience. Again, that's the major thing that's always here in Buddhist thought, back to experience. What can you experience? What's going on? That question that actually I said to you, what's going on? Yeah. This is where we're going to find the reality of things in, in the what is going on. However, so there's not a something else that's going on. So when we're talking about ultimate truth in Buddhism, we're not talking about something which is aspatial, atemporal, hidden behind experience, hidden behind this illusory stuff that's going on. It's not like that. Okay, I'll leave that just in brackets for a second. Conventional truth. Well, conventional truth is that, well, okay, they're a convention. You can only have an up and a down. Or you can only have a down if there's an up. You can only have a left if there's a right. You can only have a sansara if there's a nirvana. Yeah, these are all conventions that we play with. Um, and they describe, however ineffectively, they describe our world of experience. In fact, every language is a system of conventions. Yeah? Every language is a system of conventions. Some radically different from others. You, know, you see this particularly with colour concepts in languages. You know, some languages have distinct words for, for example, certain colours, where other will actually run them in under one word. You know, so some languages won't distinguish between red and maroon, like English does. They'll all be red of some form. Some languages don't dis describe very effectively psychological states. Actually, ordinary spoken Tibetan, not classical Tibetan, the language of the text, but spoken Tibetan doesn't. You know, actually, the, here's, the, here's the words for emotions in Tibetan. Happy or sad. That's it. 
Well, this is uh, this is particularly brought home to me with uh, very, my, my oldest Tibetan friend, um, and he he said to me once, he said, "You know," he said, "I didn't know I had certain emotions till I learnt English." <laughs> yeah, so actually, it's a really interesting question. It was a metaphysical question, but you know, which comes first, the emotion or the piece of language? Does 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 the piece of language bring the emotion into being? Or was it vice versa? You know, there's kind of interesting stuff around that. So we've got systems of conventions. Every language is a different convention. Systems of what we call the beautiful and the ugly are all systems, you know, as we can see. If you, look, if you go to an art gallery, you see the changing shape of beauty through the ages. You know, from the representational art, which dominates much of, say, the Western art tradition, all the way through to abstract forms. You know, which now would some of them be considered to be incredibly beautiful yeah, and profound. Like and with music, yeah. that's right. Yeah. You know, the going from from the, the key centre to the loss of key, you know, in, in the kind of um, music that started at the beginning of the twentieth century. You know, so you've got all these these are all systems of all systems of conventions. So what do we have? What is our world? Our world is a system of conventions. That is it. Now, all of this is described and discussed in Magarjuna as well. So, what is the ultimate truth about this world, then, if all we have is a system of conventions? The ultimate truth is there is no ultimate truth. <sighs> yeah. That is it. You know, there is no absolute truth to anything. Um, and if you want to have a little phrase to boggle your minds at this time of night, this is what I used to do with my student. Actually, what Nagarjuna's position is, is the absolute absence of absolutes. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> the absolute absence of absolutes. <laughs> there are no absolutes. And there can't be, because everything is changing. And that includes our convention. So the conventional world actually is as good as it gets as long as we don't project into the conventional world something that isn't there. Intrinsic reality, again. Does this stuff make sense? I mean, I often feel that... Well, it makes sense, but uh, to me, since there is no absolute knowing anyway, it's nice to think of it like uh, the flatlanders. Remember that book? Mm. The what? The Flatlanders. Yeah, it's kind of a very Mm. smart little thing where they talk about a world where uh, they only have two dimensions. So they live on a piece of paper, basically. Mm. And And then they talk about their great logic, their great intelligence, their great way of uh, putting everything together. Mm. And then there is someone from the third dimension who comes down and and there is no communication, or I don't know exactly, uh, it's Mm. been so long, but it's a little bit like this where all that we are talking about is for our world. Mm. Then... I mean, you know, Ken Wilbur talks about that a little bit, the idea of 
pollen, you know, like mm. first you have an, uh, an atom and then it's a molecule, so the molecule is sort of including the atom, mm. but it's bigger, and so forth and so on. Mm. So then you could still also say, well, here is our world with all these mm. qualities. Yeah. That does not preclude the uh, possibility, at least, that we could jump orbit someday mm. and get into a bigger world that will still include this world, but then have another dimension. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's possibilities, but I think given, again, because Buddhism is not speculative, it's not going into those areas, it's going into something that's going to deal with dukkha. So actually, what is the reason for this teaching, Um, even within Nagarjuna, as I say, the complexity of it and the way it's laid out and that, well, it's the overcoming of dukkha. It's the dukkha associated with grasping after the conventions as being real, not simply being conventional. So we can live a conventional existence, a conventional world, but we don't have to believe in it. We don't have to sell ourselves to it, you know, be bought into it. So, as we know, conventions are changing. They, they change even in our lifetimes, often. You know, words change meaning, don't they? And shift around, pick up new meanings. I mean, all the kind of... Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> cool, gay, you know, all of these words have changed their meaning, say, from what they were in the 19th century. And certainly even when I was a child, some of them changed their meaning. Especially if you Twitter, and you can only have 140 characters, and look at all, this, all the abbreviations now that I don't understand right. that people use. Yep. So the conventional world, there's actually nothing wrong with it. I mean, that's a great, actually, I don't know if you can breathe a sigh of relief. Here, when I first heard this, it made me want to go. Oh, that's all right then, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have to be fighting and trying to to find this thing which is supposedly real, and ultimate, outside of the conventional. You know, what it is is suspending belief in the conventional. So actually, you can live in a much much more fluid way. Also in a much more spacious way. Shunyata perceived properly is actually living spaciously. We're not believing, uh, we're not under the tyranny of things any longer. Believing ourselves to be things within the world of things, in this dominance and tyranny that we're subjected to, or subject ourselves to a lot of the time, in our relationships to the objects around us, the people around us, and to ourselves as well. So we're liberating ourselves from the dominance of thingness. Yeah. And it's actually quite nice having the fluidity of conventions around, not having to buy into them, because they will change. Some will stay around longer than others, but you know, if you go back to... You know, look at language in English. We go back to Chaucerian English, Old English, and we go back a little bit further than that, you get to Anglo-Saxon. A little bit from that to Old English. Yeah. And by most of you, probably probably most of you could be able to read a little bit of Chaucerian, but time to get to Anglo-Saxon and Old English, it certainly wouldn't. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
because there are conventions which have dropped out completely, because language is that convention. So it's a liberation from the tyranny of things and the belief in them as being this way. The belief in... And I, I kind of want to almost send this up a little bit, you know, to make fun of it. But when I say something is beautiful, I say that person is beautiful or that object is beautiful, I'm not really saying to myself, am I normally? Oh, well, that's just a convention, but I think I'll play with it for the moment and just kind of rest in it. And actually, you know, a little bit later, that thing might not appear to me to be beautiful. <coughs> Come on, we don't do that, do we? It's beautiful, I want it. <laughs> I don't know, do you do that? Fun? As, 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 a, as a more awakened being than we are, oh. what's your perception of beautiful? <laughs> beautiful is conventional, that's, that's the way I see it. It's something that changes. It's something that I don't have to get fixated by, hold on to. I can appreciate the beauty of something, but you're appreciating something that's transitory. No more, really, than the transitoriness of a lot of the beauty of nature, except these are human artefacts, often. Yeah. Now we can appreciate its beautifulness in its transitoriness. Yeah, Kissing the joys of Pardon? Kissing the joys of Yes. 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 That's right. I, I, uh, I'm going to get a. That I'm really struggling with. Um, you know, this. It's not an illusion. Mm. These things don't have absolute existence, mm. and so they're empty. And yet, you know. It, if, if there's a truck coming down the road mm. and you don't you don't say to yourself it's an illusion no. you get out of the way yeah. because it's real in some way mm. it may not be abs or you're, and that's what I that's you see that's I, not what's being said <coughs> and I'm glad you are you know, kind of make that statement because it's not what's being said it's not saying it's unreal and saying it's conventional you're not saying it's unreal mm. so don't make that equation please, because obviously things have a, have a reality, but it's not a reality that the, that, 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 not the reality that we think they have. And, and yet we have to um, rely on our ideas about um, what's real in order to avoid going to prison, for example, that, that, you know, if you go around and claim you're not who you're supposed to be and you're not going to pay your debts off, mm. then, I mean, there are consequences, just as there... But you see, that's living the convention again. Oh. If you think of law, law is a set of conventions that are set up by varying societies, and different societies will have different conventions. Mm -hmm. You know, say, what is permissible, say, in a Western liberal democracy is not necessarily permissible in uh, some Islamic cultures. Mm -hmm. you know? And then they are, get into the ethical. And this gets into the ethical. This is this is dealing with the ethical. You know, this is dealing with our, you know, the, the consequences it has are very real. You know, mm -hmm. They are very real if you transgress the convention. And yet they're not ultimate realities. They're not ultimate reality. They don't have intrinsic and no. so they don't have intrinsic reality, but they have a kind of reality. Mm. They may be empty, but they still have a kind of reality that you better take account of. They have conventional reality. They have conventional reality. Yeah, they have conventional reality. I mean, for example, if this was a table, which it's not, but, but if this was a table sitting by the side of me, I, saying that it's only a conventional reality because it, 
you know, the kind of analysis that you can do, sevenfold reasoning or the chariot and the parts of the chariot and that. You know, if this was a table, or there's one directly behind me. Um, I'm not saying, well, because it doesn't possess any ultimate reality in the sense that it has any intrinsic reality to it, I don't put my coffee cup on it. Mm. You know, it's exactly your truck mm. coming towards you. Mm. You know, you mm. still act in a way that you know, accepts the reality of it, although it is only conventional. So what we've done is not negate the world. What we've done is reorient our understanding of it. You know, in the course of ego development, I guess many psychologists talk about something called object constancy, which is something to do, I suppose, with beginning to see our mother as a whole. Maybe originally we just, maybe some people would say, we just see the breast, you know. Mm. And then gradually, gradually, you know, you begin to take into account that there can be a good mood and a bad mood. And the same thing with yourself. It's like you're welding together in the, what is a, a very fraught process, really. And I, I think that I, I, I'm just trying to account for why I find it quite, you know, challenging. Hmm. Because I, I think so much of one's mental life is, is, is about fabricating fabricating a bruise, fabricating whatever it is, you know, which you, you then rely on. And that has consequences. That uh, It means other, you, you expect other people to be reliable, you know, you, mm. even though they're, often they're not. But, mm. but you, live, you live inside of that, and we all, we all do in some ways. Which yeah. is, I think, why something like this credit crunch is, is quite shocking, isn't it? Because it reveals all these things we conventionally put our, take refuge in. Well, well, exactly, and you know, as you, know, you said, you mentioned that it's as if sort of economics possesses an intrinsic reality that will tell us something about economic systems. It doesn't. It's a set of conventions, and actually, if you get the conventions wrong, you get something horrible like this happening, yeah. because people believed in them. They believed in their economic models, and this is the way it should be. <coughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So much so, I was very struck by, there's a, there a lovely quote by John Maynard Keynes, who said, the one good thing about economics was it made the study of astrology look reputable. That's how much we can buy into a, a set of conventions. Yes. And I think, I think you're right, I mean, th this is meant to be challenging. I mean, Nagarjuna, I think, is, as I say, a radical. He's challenging not only within his own culture Hindu ideas, which are prevalent at the time coming to him, but Buddhist ideas, because people are holding on to them deeply, deeply, deeply. Actually, the Buddhist path itself is a set of conventions that are put together to make movement, to affect change. Do we have to go around asking whether it's real? Or not? I don't think so. You know, it's pragmatics, isn't it? It depends on whether actually the movement occurs because of it. Without having to believe, and this is again, believers in Buddhism. Now, it's not. It's a set of very, very useful conventions which helps to, you know, get movement in a certain direction, hopefully. But, like everything else, if we grasp after it, it turns into the snake that bites us. Could you link 
um, the fact that there's no intrinsic existence in anything with the codependency of things. Oh, yes. So the fact that you're sitting there, you wouldn't be sitting there if those four Zafus weren't next to you. Mm. I can't link that so easily. Well, in understanding, for example, my spatial relations, yeah. uh, it's talking about codependency, yeah. codependency yeah. and emptiness, and saying, as being said, was that you can't understand the codependency of me sitting here with the four Zafus sitting next to me. Is that I have understood it many times before, but having just had this whole discussion, it would be nice to be reminded of my understanding. Right, well, it's, it's in our relations to... Yeah, two things. This is what codependency is about. Is it's a relational aspect of things. Um, and some things, for example, we can't, because of the complex webs of interdependency, this is, this is my preferred word, it's not interconnectedness, it's interdependency. That actually, often we, because of the complexity of the world of interdependency, we can't see them. We can't see those connections at all. Um, and with, perhaps with relations, apart from the spatialness, I can say, can this is my right-hand side. Here it goes. I've got my right, the spatiality of it all. You know, well, spatial relations are exactly that. They're codependent relations. You know, left and right, you know, up and down, all of these things. Those are codependent relations. Again, there are conventions here. Um, but let's talk again talk about something that's really important here, which is when we start talking about interdependence, we're talking about <clears throat> the world being opened up in such a way that we see ourselves as being supported by other things. Now, the most basic way I was going to do this when we talked about ethics, but since we've got here tonight, let's just do it now, which is which is, I can, as an ego, self, think of myself as independent. <laughs> I mean, that's laughable in a sense, because everything, absolutely everything, that I'm wearing, eating, the electricity, the, the walls of the building are supporting my existence. You know, just to stay alive, I've got to, and again, this is a very Mahayanist view, and I think it's a very good view, of actually um, being provided by others. You know, often in extremely bad circumstances, in many cases, exploitative circumstances. You know, again, there's an ethics to that side of it as well. So here I am as an ego self, thinking of myself as independent, moving around this world independently. No, I'm not. I'm as, almost like a baby. You know, would soon see this if the food starts to run out and the electricity starts to crash and things like that. You'll see how independent we are. You know, we will not know our way around this world at all. So, I was trying to get a grip on... Because I think this has something to do with perception as well. Um, I was trying to remove my perception from the whole awareness experience and this came up and I was outside and I was really experiencing everything in, in plain awareness and then I tried to 
understand that I was also an interdependent factor in that whole yes. circle to try to remove the perception. Mm. And I couldn't... So I was outside. There wasn't a building supporting me. I didn't have to be eating any food at that moment. I, I know maybe I was just taking it too much in that one moment. Okay, I was standing on the grass, breathing the air. Mm. Is, that, is that the sort of... Mm. Okay. Yeah, just breathing the air is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I've been joking aside. I mean, that is it. I mean, again, we're dependent on other beings for breathing the oxygen we breathe. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So this notion of independent, or the the notion of the isolated ego or self, which is independent, is completely illusory. It's completely. It's it's it's, it's a myth. So the, uh, I think it's worthwhile shattering this myth <coughs> that actually you and I are all dependent entities. Yeah. Every being on this planet is a dependent entity. Yeah. Nothing is self-sufficient in that way. And that's really one of the big ethical implications of this view. That we actually are opening up in the spaciousness of Shunyata, not nothing, but actually the complexity of everything. Yeah. Just in the way that table comes about by being a label which is posited over a number of parts placed together in certain relationships, then actually even the notion of self is coming about placed in relationships, often. Yeah. So it's overcoming this illusion. And so actually what we're opening up is a field of ethical behaviour. Now, some traditions, there's a, there's a Japanese tradition called the um, Shin tradition, which actually, coming from Shinran, um, actually that the primary practice within this, and I'm not a great one for pure land, it's not a form of Buddhism that's ever particularly appealed to me, but, but one of the practices I think is really, really excellent, it's gratitude. Yeah. And actually every day in Shin Buddhism, people go to the temple um, to pay gratitude for what they have, what they're being given, the air that they breathe, the water that they drink, the clothes that they wear. And this is the opposite to the kind of what-I-don't-have attitude <laughs> in this world. Now, all of us can suffer from the sense of lack. There's something that we're lacking that we would like to be. But how often do we pay... You know, how, how often do we actually really appreciate the, you know, with profound gratitude what we have, however much or however little that, that we actually have in our day-to-day -day life. We like to say thank you to something, though, don't we? Like to the idea of God. Yeah. But in this tradition, you don't even have to do that. <laughs> but say thank you to the beings that are providing it. And that's what you can say thank you to. You know, for the myriads of hands and the creatures that go to produce the, the cotton that you wear. You know, the, the, um, the, the shoe leather that are on your feet. You know, the food that you imbibe. You know, these are really basic things, but I think we just need to remind ourselves, occasionally, and I think this is coming out of this view, as I say, that we are not independent creatures. We are only alive really based on the beneficial actions of others. Yeah. 
and others often we will never, ever, ever come into contact with. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a humbling thought, isn't it? You have to think about it in that way. It's a bit easier the other way in terms of the cushion, because you can see that in order for the cushion to come into existence, it needed to be manufactured. Mm. So it's easier to see interdependence of things think, when you're just in your quick thinking mind. Mm. But it's coming to this radical interdependence of ourselves. Mm. With yeah, I mean, this is seeing the interdependence of things outside is a first step. It really is only a first step. Seeing the lack of, you know, the lack of substantiality of things is a first step. Until you turn it inwards, because otherwise it can be just distanced, just always distancing things. You know, everything, <laughs> everything else is empty, not me. <laughs> so when when people say, as an example that thing is only there because you're there. It's sort of getting into mind only and that Buddhism and, and that's not what we're getting at here at all. Not it's here. I'm only here because of all these things around here. It's not just like a mind thinking about an object, therefore that object exists. That's right. I mean mind only well we'll explore this at some point, but Mind only, on, based if you think it's a philosophical position within Buddhism, um, a doctrinal position, is really saying, well, actually things come into being because of my mind. Their being is in their perception. Yeah, and that's no different from lots of Western philosophical schools as well that have that idea. Um, except the only thing is we don't go around behaving as if our minds were creating stuff. Yeah. I mean, but is it not big mind rather than just little mind, which is also empty, but you know, is dependent on the phenomenal world for its existence? Yes, I think you know. Obviously, things are not independent of mind, but they're not totally dependent on mind as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a something of which the mind is perceiving, um, and it's imprinting it in a certain way. Now, I'll come back to the issue of mind only and its position within. Buddhism, as I say, probably next week. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, diffi- it's a difficult position to hold ultimately. Um, if you take it as a doctrinal position, that there is this mind creating this world. For one thing, it fails to account for an intersubjective world. But it's not saying the mind creates; it's saying the world is the mind. There is only mind. That's a different position from the Yogacara and Chittamatra position. Is it? Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like that. It's like the sort of this whole idea about something beyond. I've heard it. You know, the word void used, and and you know, the or manifest and unmanifest, and it's still a dependency. One isn't different from the other. One relies on the other for its, but it still points to something beyond. Yeah. Of which we all are, which then is a total nihilism. But at the same time, we have our experience. So it doesn't. It doesn't mean that it has to go into a whole unethical kind of nothing matters. No, I think there are yeah, again I think there's there's lots of shades of those types of views around. I don't think they're particularly Buddhist positions. They're not particularly Buddhist positions. Um, in certain forms of Hindu Advaita, for example, you find a drive towards unitariness and oneness and all this stuff. And that is not the Buddhist direction. It's kind of Zen. No, well, you find forms of Zen, some forms of Dzogchen as well, and 
you know, personally, I have great problems with them as being what the Buddha taught. Because right. yeah. I think he's actually teaching the wonder of the pr plurality of things. Mm. But this doesn't take away from that. Pardon? This doesn't take away from that. It's no, but if you take... I mean, I don't want to get into this. This is, a, <laughs> this is a big discussion. But if you, if you get into classical Advaita, for example, I mean, the Advaita of Shankara, then it's quite clear that the phenomenal world is an illusion for Shankara, that the only thing that is real is Paramatma, uh, Parama Brahman, which is actually the only real thing. Everything else that takes place is simply the Jivatman, and that's all, is all illusory. But he also says that, also said that the Jivatman and Paramatman are one and the same. Shankara doesn't say that. No. In fact, that reductionism is never affected in Shankara. Yeah. But that's said. That's uh, that's a mm. belief in. I don't know where it comes from. Which uh, well, you see, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of neo-advaita schools as well. Um, in other words, other forms of non-dualism that you find in Indian thought. So it's quite a complex range of different views. I mean, there's also there's qualified dualism as uh, non-dualism as well, which is actually one of the other famous figures in Indian thought, which is Ramanuja. Again, this is getting right off the topic. I mean. yeah. Yeah. Who actually is tremendously critical of the Shankaran view and classical Advaita as it comes out of the Upanishads. So, but all I'm saying is, I didn't want to get into a big discussion about it, but I think it's the opposite movement to the one that's being affected in Buddhism, because actually Buddhism is not going towards oneness you know, there are some forms of non-dualism, but they're not non-dualism in that sense of going towards oneness. What they're going into is this set of interdependencies, where actually each interdependent aspect is a nodule or a link in the net of, of, of Indra, the way it's placed. So it's actually separateness, but togetherness as well. I still think both can be true. Yeah, <laughs> I don't philosophically. I think they're incompatible. Yeah, okay, well. <laughs> but that's a philosophical view. I, mean, I don't want to go there. Sure. You, you, you can't see. Um, I mean, just you know, if you all those seem rather silly arguments going on in America, particularly between like intelligent design and uh, about evolution. I mean, from a to me, you know, perhaps I'm totally wrong, but from a Buddhist point of view, no, it seems obvious that uh, almost everything. In evolution, one thing after another thing, it, it all hangs together. You know, um, mm. you know, I don't know, look at your hand, you can see the entire history of the universe from that. I mean, and I don't just, I think you can, I think you can see it on two levels. Not only is it sort of um, structurally sort of similar, and presumably there were many attempts at a hand before you got to monkeys being able to grasp or whatever, but also that's, that's the whole thing about form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. That when you see right into something, it's like you see, I don't know, time, there's no time. I'm not quite sure whether I'm following your arguments there. I mean, the emptiness is form, form is emptiness. is basically a statement that you can't have emptiness as a separate thing. Emptiness is always an emptiness of a something. When, when to me, and maybe I'm deluded, but when, it, it feels like when your heart opens, and you're not, you're not in your head, etc., uh, I, I, I've seen sometimes things look actually transparent to me. You, you can literally see the mm. transparency of things, you know. And at that time, nothing is, exists as a separate object. It's like a kind of 
as a field. You could say it's a field, mm. and uh, things are still, um, you know, like Bill's truck is still a truck coming towards you, and yet you 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 can see it's empty. It's insubstantial, and yet everything is somehow one. I I think it might be incorrect to say it's one, because mm. there are many mice and elephants and all that sort of things. But still, and and. I think this accounts for a great deal of behaviour. You get two tomcats on a wall, and each of them know, in some kind of tomcat way, that they're the whole thing. And that's why they find it so difficult to negotiate. And I think that's why <laughs> egos are like that, that each one of us thinks we are the whole thing. Perhaps it's the tomcats. Well, anyway, I don't know. Well, I mean, been, I mean, these thoughts were around in Indian thought at the time. I just don't think... That they're actually, you know, certainly not what Nagarjuna is saying, they're certainly not what the Buddha is saying. What we're seeing, and this is final because it's getting late, is actually what we've got is this net, absolutely uh, all encompassing net of interdependencies, some of which are perspicuous, we can see, a lot of what we can't, a lot of them we can't see. But it's not, it's, if you want to have any word, it's more of a whole, wholeness, not a oneness that's there, you know, that you're describing. Yeah. And it's not as if, and actually this is the kind of much more classical of Panishadic, it's not as if we're all slipping back into the one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that. It's we're held together in our differences and our similarities. Is that because oneness implies origination in some way? Oneness, really, in the way that the Upanishads imply, is oneness um, is there is the ori- there is only one thing. It's what's called a monistic view. There is only one thing actually in this universe, and somehow all this plurality that we see, you and I, and the differentiation of the world is illusory, and if we really understood it, we'd understand that actually we're only this one thing. That's all. Isn't, um, isn't the oneness that... Mahayana oneness... That my understanding through experience is that it's more a harmoniousness than a... It's not like a spatial oneness, mm. it's a, an experiential oneness. Well, that's again. If you be, if you really begin to understand this stuff, then actually the word that's used. I think it was this. I was going to stop, didn't I? <laughs> the word that's actually used is non-dualism. Yeah. So yeah. it's overcoming the subject-object duality. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that there are not two different entities. It's not experienced as being two separate entities. And that's where I thought the emptiness form form is emptiness comes down to exactly the same as nirvana and samsara. It's yes, it's relational, and also the big point about it is that emptiness is a relational term that can't exist without form. So emptiness is always in regard to form, but and form is always we perf- if we perceive form, we perceive emptiness. If we perceive emptiness, we perceive a form. We perceive death. We perceive life. So, yes. You know, black, white. It's all. Yeah, it's relational. It's, yeah. it's a relational term. Mm. Yeah. And then it will go into you know, there is no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue. You know, all the rest of it. And the scandals are empty as well. It's, yeah. it's easier to perceive that oneness in meditation because 
you're, you're out of your labelling mind. Mm. And so perhaps what everybody perceives is the same. It's just when you then try to describe it, no words, mm. no words will suffice to describe this non-dualistic experience. Yeah. And when you do try to describe it, it ends up as philosophy. And then there's a doctrinal position, and everybody gets arguing about it. <laughs> that's the that's the philosoph that's the game. Yeah. So what starts out as a report on experience becomes doctrinal. Okay, I think you've beaten me into submission yeah. tonight. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.